I grew up in Ireland, and I was a teenager while the Syrian refugee crisis was in full flux. A lot of people I knew were absolutely terrified of Muslims coming into the country. They feared an alien culture that they believed to be repressive and brutal. And in some ways, you can't blame people. All we ever saw in the media was what hyped up our fears most. We only ever heard about the bad of the Muslim world, none of the good. Being 100% honest, as a teen, I was no better than the rest. I bought into every single narrative about the Islamic faith having nothing to offer the West. But thankfully, my mind was changed. I was shown how wrong I was in my thinking when I started to read about Islam throughout history, and that in fact, the Muslim world was, for a very long time, a center of learning, progress, and tolerance during what is often called by historians the Islamic Golden Age. Today, we are going to be talking about a thinker that symbolizes this Golden Age perfectly, Ibn Rushd, or as often referred to in the West, Averroes, a polymath in medical research, philosophy, and jurisprudence. Ibn Rushd wrote about a wide variety of topics, and articulated ideas that would come into vogue not until the cherished Enlightenment era of the Western world. Joining me today to tell us about the life and importance of Averroes is my colleague Mustafa Akiol, a senior fellow at Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, where he focuses on the intersection of public policy, Islam, and modernity. He is the author of three books, The Islamic Jesus, How the King of the Jews Became a Prophet of the Muslims, Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty, and his newest and brilliant book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance. Welcome. Thanks so much, Paul. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you. So, before we learn about who Averroes is, can you explain what exactly the Islamic Golden Age was and how it challenges the caricature Westerners often have of the Muslim world? Thank you so much, Paul. And allow me to say a few words even about this fear of the refugees that you mentioned, you know, that you uh, observed in your country, uh, Ireland. Uh, there are bad people doing bad things in the name of Islam today, but uh, they are really a small minority. And unfortunately, if you don't know a society well, the worst people in that society attract your attention. And you try to start to define the society from based on those worst experiences. Uh, the media, you know, helps that in a way because Muslims who do terrible things make the news and headlines. Other Muslims, the, the overwhelming majority who's peaceful and having decent lives, they don't make the headlines. And uh, I'll say this is a dynamic working on both sides of the civilizational divide. I mean, a lot of Muslims have stereotypical views about Western societies precisely because uh, they don't know those societies as well. And all they have in mind are some of the bad episodes in near history from Western occupation or colonialism, which, which should be all, of course, criticized and condemned, but they don't know the uh, average reality out there, which is actually much more uh, nuanced than, uh, uh, which is in many ways similar to Muslim societies. Now, coming back to your question, thank you for that. Yes, uh, there was what scholars called the Islamic Golden Age. And most people put it between the 8th and the 13th centuries. Why do we call it the Golden Age? Because it was a time that demonstrably the Islamic civilization was probably the most advanced civilization uh, on the face of the earth. Uh, that means the Islamic civilization was more productive in terms of uh, technology, science, mathematics, philosophy, arts. Uh, Islamic civilization had hospitals when uh, Europeans didn't have. Islamic civilization invented uh, concepts or developed concepts like uh, 
algorithm, which comes from the name of Al-Kharizmi, you know, an Arab uh, scholar, or Islamic scholars called mathematics Al-Jabir, which became Algebra <laughs> in English. So there are actually very interesting roots. Uh, in, there are words in the English language and the French too, with Arabic roots, showing that precisely that there was a big translation. There was a big borrowing from the Arab culture, which shows that uh, that culture, actually not Arab, but broadly Islamic culture, was more productive. It was also a time when Muslims were more tolerant compared when compared to uh, Christendom of the time. And that is evidence in the fact that uh, most of the time Jews preferred to live under Muslim rule compared to Christian rule. Uh, in fact, J Jews, Sephardic Jews, that happened a bit later in the uh, 15th century, but they fled from Catholic Spain to the Islamic Ottoman Empire because the Ottoman Empire had given them much more freedom and 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 uh, chance to flourish. So there was this time that really a lot of Muslims look back and say uh, we were really great, and there's some nostalgia, some pride in that. But so I, I speak about this in my book, but I also call on my fellow Muslims to think, well, what was the secret of that golden age? Why it went down? And my answer is, well, it was great because it was cosmopolitan. It was open-minded. And uh, we lost that open-mindedness and, and universalism. Uh, and that was the beginning of the stagnation and ultimately led to the crisis in modernity where Islamic foundation, civilization, sorry, found itself uh, in a very underdeveloped stage compared to the West, and that led to endless uh, crises that are still with us today. And so Avaros is coming towards the end of this golden age. And so now that we know a little bit more about the times he lived in, could you tell us a bit about his life and career as a scholar? He was a real polymath. He wrote about all kinds of things like jurisprudence, medicine, science, astronomy. How, did he, how was he so well-read at a time when in Europe, scholars had scraps of Aristotle and Plato to read alongside a really, really rudimentary view of science. Like he's talking about some extremely advanced ideas and concepts, and he has so many more translations than the Western world. I'd like to talk a bit about the culture he lived in, but also what he was doing and where he came from. Sure. Averroes, or Ibn Rushd, uh, as is his original name goes, was a Muslim scholar, judge, jurist, and philosopher in, uh, in, in Spain uh, in, in, at the height of the, or at the end of the, towards the end of the Islamic golden age. And uh, he, uh, he, of course, was, I mean, I call him the last man standing in my book, right? I have a chapter, The Last Man Standing in the Rusht. Uh, that's the reason I call him uh, that way, uh, because he was living in the 12th century and before that, Islamic civilization had began this great translation movement, which was a trigger to Muslim philosophy. Uh, it actually began in Baghdad, not in Spain, where Ibn Rushd lived in. Uh, Spain was the capital of the Abbasid Empire, which is the beginning of this golden age. And, and Muslims discovered books of Plato and Aristotle and Galen and Euclid, Greek philosophers, uh, they discovered them from Christians, by the way. We should not forget that. So Western Christianity had lost Greek philosophy and really was in what many people still call the Dark Age. But uh, Eastern Christians, especially Syriac Christians, preserved those books. And uh, But Muslims discovered them and they said, this is fascinating, right? And they started to translate them. And that translation movement, which lasted for more than a century, uh, Dimitri Gutas, an expert on that history, says, 
it was the first time in human history that uh, people, uh, it, it was the first time in history which demonstrated that scientific and philosophical thought are international, not bound to a specific language or culture. That led to great philosophers such as Al-Farabi, who for the first time in Islamic civilization spoke of a civilization based on hurriya, that is freedom, and which he, which he praised. Uh, that led to Avicenna, or Ibn Sina, as he's known. He was probably one of the greatest uh, thinkers in human history, who uh, combined Aristotle and Neoplatonism. And these were Muslims. I mean, I should emphasize that all of these philosophers were believing Muslims, but they also believed that while revelation, that is the Quran and the prophetic wisdom, is a guidance that came from God, they also believed that human nature and human intellect is also a source of finding wisdom and, and truth. That's why uh, Aristotle was an infidel, you know, by Islamic definitions or Plato, but they didn't see any problem in learning from them. And that universalism, I think, was the trigger of this golden age. Uh, and Ibn Rushd was uh, building upon that. He was, I think, the last one to really uphold that tradition. And also he was responding to a reaction to that philosophy and rationalism, which basically ultimately criminalized that, saying that these are deviant ideas that we don't need, uh, and which ultimately led to the decline of philosophy, uh, the rejection of philosophy as an independent discipline, uh, I should emphasize. So Ibn Rushd uh, was this great commentator on Aristotle. He wrote three layered commentaries that, powerfully influenced Europe and uh, initiated an intellectual revolution in Europe. But unfortunately, his view remained less influential in the lens of Islam because he was the last re representative of a trend that was already being pushed aside. So you said in the Western world, Averroes became a respected figure. And I've heard before that in Dante Alighieri is the divine comedy. He's awarded a place in limbo alongside other virtuous pagans like Plato and Socrates and the Emperor Trajan. And in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, he's cited as a great philosophical authority. What exactly did Western thinkers take from Averroes? How did it influence their thought? Sure. I mean, Dante wasn't generous enough, I should say, but that's normal in the, uh, in the world of his uh, time. Uh, we should say that Raphael also, in his very famous School of Athens, his painting, uh, presents Ibn Rushd as one of the founding fathers of the world, the world's intellectual tradition. Um, he was, his works were translated into Latin, Latin and Hebrew. Which is interesting. So, he, and those translations influenced both the Christian and the Jewish traditions. And I think he was understood more accurately in the Jewish tradition. And in in the in the Jewish tradition, by the way, he's very much in parallel with Maimonides, the great, uh, who's from his own city. By the way, he was his contemporary. They were both great men of Cordoba. That's why when you go to Cordoba today in Spain, you will. Uh, with very little difference, distance in between them, you'll find their statues, right? And, and Maimonides. And uh, the idea was that there is truth that is out there. There's a rational world, which has causal, uh, causal laws, which has natural laws. Reason can discover these. Uh, philosophers can discover these, regardless of their beliefs. Uh, they can be pagans. They can be anything. And we should build upon that and we should reconcile that with our scripture. So that influenced, I think, a very important 
trend within Judaism, which later flourished in the Jewish Enlightenment, the Haskalah, which made basically Jews a part of the modern world, most of the time pioneers of the modern world. Uh, in Christianity, uh, I think he was sometimes misunderstood by the Averroists. So it led to a reaction from the Catholic Church. The Averroists were a condemned group, a heretical group in 13th century uh, Europe, uh, in France uh, especially. But it started uh, this idea that besides scripture, there is a rational world that has to be dis studied on its own terms. And if there is a conflict, you can reinterpret the scripture because the truth doesn't confront truth. And that really was a beginning, I mean, a major boost to what would become later the Renaissance and, and even the Enlightenment. Uh, it's just sad to me that Averroes or Ibn Rushd had this great impact on Europe that a lot of historians are acknowledging, but he had less influence uh, on the Muslim world. And I think that is just an accident of history that uh, you know needs to be revisited, and 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 I think his wisdom needs to be uh, rethought today. So you mentioned the Renaissance, but Averroes was a polymath and a Renaissance man three hundred years before the Renaissance, and hundreds of years before the Enlightenment. Uh, he already has some great ideas that would come to form the core of liberalism. Uh, Charles Bullworth, the professor of political philosophy, in the beginning of your chapter on Averroes, you have a quote from this professor, and he says, an early version of the famous 18th century European Enlightenment can be found in the Islamic philosophy, particularly in the writing of Averroes. So what views did Averroes have that came close to the Enlightenment thinkers that many people in the classical liberal world revere today? Well, one is the idea of natural law. I mean, he believed that human nature and reason can uh, build ethical values that are not limited to one religion, which meant that even if people are not Muslims, they can be ethically uh, valued. They can be ethically sound. I mean, they don't. The fact that they're outside of your religious community doesn't make them. Uh, invaluable from a human perspective. So there was a humanism to it, and I think that was important. Another aspect to uh, Abreuas, Ibn Rushd, and I think which had an influence in Europe and which I tried to show in my book, was his belief in a free debate, <laughs> which was not very common at the time. Uh, in one of his works, he says, you should always, when presenting a philosophical argument, cite the views of your opponents. Failure to do so is an implicit acknowledgement of the weakness of your own case. In other words, he says, I mean, if you're going to have a philosophical argument, just really allow the other side to make their case in full, which was not a popular idea at the time. I mean, we have other Islamic scholars writing at the time that children should be protected from snakes in the same way that the population must be protected from heretical ideas. That's why Ibn Rushd's own books got burned, you know, by the uh, rigid orthodoxy uh, in Cordoba. I mean, the, the people who attacked him ultimately towards the end of his life because of his supposed heresy. And uh, this approach of Ibn Rushd, and he himself exemplifies that. I mean, he's, his greatest uh, intellectual rival is Imam al-Ghazali, who was the great Asharite theologian who condemned the philosophers, although he was more nuanced than what some people think, but he ultimately criminalized uh, uh philosophy to some extent, at least in the long run. Um, and Ibn Rushd, whenever he uh, re responds to Ghazali, he takes 
long quotes, sometimes page long, two page long quotes from Ghazali. He says, this is what he says, and this is what I say. Now, it was uh, a, a great intellectual we lost last year, uh, Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs, who traced how Ibn Rushd influenced some Jewish philosophers, such as Rabbi Love of Prague, who said Averroes' words hold true for religion as well. So don't you know, allow the opponents of religion to speak their mind. That will show that our religious arguments are strong. And then that influ- how that influenced other thinkers, like uh, even all the way to John Stuart Mill. So I think he brought into a sort of approach to knowledge and free debate, which influenced certain minds in Europe. So in that sense, he was a humanist and he was a believer in a rational discussion with everybody making their case, which was a great thing at the time, which was not a very popular idea. But looking back at the past, often even the best and most eminent and famous philosophers often have some of the worst views on women. So you have people like Aristotle who think that women are kind of like mutilated men. You have people like Kant who said a bearded woman, like a woman with an intellect might as well have a beard because it's too masculine. You have all these philosophers throughout history who talk about justice and natural rights, who all of a sudden do a complete 180 and they degrade women and put them down to the status of second-class citizens at best and subhuman at the very worst. How did Averroes view women? He was a follower of Aristotle. Did he take his views on women or did he take any other kind of alternative stance towards equality? You're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of the great thinkers of the past were pretty terrible when it came to women. I mean, they lived in a culture of patriarchy, which subsued, I mean, or degraded women to a certain role in society and assumed that it's from their nature. And you can find those views certainly in, in the Islamic tradition as well. And I think they do not really come from the Quran, but the patriarchal culture of uh, Islamic jurists uh, and some of the people who narrated or invented certain sayings uh, from the Prophet Muhammad. Um, Interestingly, and that is one of the great things about Ibn Rushd, that Ibn Rushd was not a patriarchal thinker, and he actually pushed against that. And that's very surprising because Aristotle, as you rightly point out, wasn't really great on women. I mean, he was also very demeaning. But another philosopher from uh, Greek, uh, the Greek tradition, Plato, and Plato has some other troubling views, but on women, Plato had very enlightened views, if you will. He said their intellectual capacity is the same with men, which was a very remarkable thing to say. Now, Ibn Rushd, in his commentary on Plato's Republic, embraces this idea. And he says, yes, uh, women can be philosophers and rulers, even clerics. Uh, and so he he's convinced by the idea that women have the same intellectual capacity with men. But then he looks back into Islamic society uh, of his time, and he writes a very strong criticism of, let's say, patriarchy. Uh, I mean, he says, in these states, which is Muslim states of his time, however, the ability of women is not known because they are only taken for procreation there. They are placed at the servants of their husbands and relegated to the business of procreation, rearing and breastfeeding. And he says this is a criticism. Uh, and he says this is a reason for the weakness of these states. So when you really disempower half of your society, uh, the society itself gets uh, weakened and becomes less productive. 
Katarina Bello is a contemporary philosopher of philosophy, really uh, examined these very feminist views of Ibn Rushd. And she says uh, his considerations on women offer a remarkably original insight uh, and very progressive and uh, pre-envisioned pre, uh, some of the debates in modern Europe. So, yeah, on that issue, too, um, Ibn Rushd was remarkably interesting and progressive and ahead of his time. Uh, and it's sad that today some of the criticism he raised um, to Muslim society in 12th century Spain is relevant to certainly Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, or some other patriarchal societies we see in the Muslim world today. So if Ibn Rushd is such a forward-thinking person, he had Enlightenment values hundreds of years before John Locke ever put pen to paper, he thought women were equal to men years before Mary Wollstonecraft, why do we never see him in any philosophy curricula? Has he been just ignored by the Western world, or is it just ignorance? I mean, I think there is some recognition of him, and I see, of course, him being referenced by some philosophical uh, classes and so on and so forth. But yes, you're right that, uh, I mean, if you're speaking from the Western tradition, uh, the Western historical understanding goes on like this. I mean, there were the ancient Greeks, they were lost, and then, then, then we rediscovered them. By whom? That's generally not mentioned, <laughs> you know, through whom? And then, of course, we created the modern world, the Renaissance and uh, the Enlightenment and so on and so forth. So there are other civilizations out there like Islam or Hindus or Chinese. Well, they have nothing to do with us. Our, our story is a Western story. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty common view. And uh, I mean, of course, there are scholars who push against that, but it's still there. And I think that is very misguided and, and that's very unfair because... Uh, the great Western civilization had a lot of input from other civilizations and primarily Islam. And uh, the ideas of Ibn Rushd are just one thing that really influenced Western enlightenment. I actually, in my book, I begin with the story of Ibn Tufail and his famous novel, Hai bin Yaqsan, which became a bestseller in 17th century Europe, in England and France and Holland, uh, because of the humanism that it was actually promoting. So there are a lot of inputs from Islam into Western history, which should be acknowledged. Of course, there are a lot of inputs into Islam from ancient Greece and, and Hindu tradition. And, but that is a universalism. That's the, uh, that's our universalistic heritage as humanity. And we, we people have this tendency to think that our people, whomever they are, our civilization or our religion or our church or our political party, you know, has all the wisdom that is ever needed, which is a very narrow and misguided view. And it leads to intolerance. It leads to conflict. It leads to a lot of terrible things. Recently, I was reading Rose Wilder Lane and her discovery of freedom. And she talks about there's three attempts in human history at a more free society. The first is kind of the Abrahamic biblical story. The third is the American Revolution. But the second one shocked me. It was the Islamic Golden Age and the founding of Islam as a religion. She talks about the Prophet Muhammad as a self-made businessman. And she talks all about how the American world couldn't have possibly existed without the Islamic world. She talks about Arabic numerals, how mathematics and engineering couldn't have existed without, you know, the number zero. She talks about the advances in medicine, navigation, translation, all of these amazing ideas. She even talks about how the universities 
in the Islamic world, you could choose whatever courses you wanted. You didn't have to do any mandatory courses. And this is exactly the vision of the founding father, Thomas Jefferson, who also had a great admiration for Islam. And so I'm wondering, do you think that American, well, often when you listen to many conservatives or some Republicans talk about Islam, they talk about how Muslims can't integrate into America. They can't have American values. But does it seem like American values and Muslim values aren't actually that far away when you look at it historically? Um, thanks for bringing that up, uh, Paul. And I should say Muslims have integrated to America quite well, <laughs> in fact. I mean, especially to America, because uh, I think the Muslim community in France has uh, sometimes have a harder time in uh, integrating because their full religious freedom isn't respected there, right? I mean, there are so discriminatory laws in the name of some illiberal understanding of secularism. But Muslims have been integrating into America quite successfully. And I think that's an important thing because if Islamic civilization will overcome the current illiberal tendencies that it is quite dominant in, in the Middle East, especially in parts of South Africa, that will happen when Muslims uh, see and experience the value of freedom. And that's going to happen mostly in the West. I mean, American Muslims mostly embrace freedom because uh, they can speak up their mind. They can be as Muslim as they are. They can be critical of whatever they want to be critical. Uh, and, and the you know security will not be at your door next day, uh, as it can happen in the, the autocracies of the Middle East. So this whole idea that Muslims are going, coming here to transform and change our civilization and turn it into something bad as a fifth column, that is pretty misguided. And as someone, I'm, uh, as someone who criticizes a lot of the uh, intolerant, illiberal, autocratic tendencies in Islam today, I think uh, we need to we need to make it flourish. I mean, we need to make Islam flourish in, in, in free society so it becomes an example for other Muslims to be inspired from. Going back to Rose Wilder Lane, I mean, thanks for bringing that up. I mean, I uh, refer to the late uh, Wilder Lane in my epilogue in my book. And yes, she says Islam was a religion that saved uh, people from pagan gods and declared that men, and, men are equal and free. And Islam built a tolerant and humane civilization with religious freedom. Uh, it's, it's interesting that Wilder Lane, who wrote these in the middle of the 20th century, in 1943, uh, to be precise, uh, saw such a light in Islam, uh, which which shows that the current concern with Islam, sometimes the current paranoia about Islam, is a pretty new thing. Uh, it just began in the 70s with the rise of extremists in the in, in the Arab world and elsewhere, and it's understandable. But uh, this shows that actually, if you take the broad view, if you compare Islam to the West in in its 14th centuries long history, you wouldn't say that Islam is a troubling civilization. Quite the contrary, there are many times Islamic world looked more tolerant and more pluralistic and more free. Uh, we are just at a bad time of the Islamic civilization right now. And if you looked at Christian uh, civilization, Europe in, in the 17th century, at the time of the Thirty Years' War, when uh, uh, Europeans were slaughtering each other for being Catholic or Protestant, you wouldn't have very high views about uh, Europe too, but it changed, and it changed with ideas of John Locke and, and Pierre Bale and the Enlightenment, ultimately, which led to the American Revolution and the American Constitution. 
I believe we are at a tr- similarly troubling time in the history of the Islamic civilization. And precisely because of that, we have to make the case strongly for freedom and toleration with, with its roots, authentic roots in the, in the history of the Islamic civilization and, and faith. And, and that's what my new book is about, uh, a return to reason, freedom and tolerance. So I'm not saying these are not unknown in Islam, but it, their roots are there, but we just have to cultivate them. Thanks, Emil, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Portraits of Liberty is written and hosted by me, Paul Meany, and produced by Landry Ayers. You can also visit libertarianism.org to find more shows like this. I hope to see you next time. <laughs>